trying to clarify what we mean by the mind that is Buddha and um, pointing out the various um, misinterpretations. Again, the, uh, seems like the main, the main issues that Dogen had with Seneca are that the, this mind we're talking about big mind here, or true nature, is located in the body. That seems to be a, a problem. And that this mind knows or relates to objects outside of itself. That would be dualistic consciousness. That seems to be a problem. And that this mind is an existent entity of some kind, some sort of thing, that would also be a problem. Those are the main, main uh, flaws in Srenika's view from Dogen's point of view. So after clarifying all that, we may feel like through these discussions that we're kind of open to more and more a kind of a experiential sense of, of this mind that itself is Buddha. Maybe, or maybe through our zazen, some of these teachings are starting to accord with that. But um, maybe not. Maybe it all sounds good as philosophy, but it sounds like, but I still don't have any access to this, to this, mind that, that um, it's a kind of abstract idea and uh, I hope to have some taste of that someday because as some people say um, enlightenment is an accident so it's like we just have to wait for it and hope for the best and make ourselves accident prone by, by sitting a lot of zazen that's one approach, <laughs> but it, it might uh, 
with it, what if, uh, what if the accident ever happens? <laughs> so, um, so, what are some methods we can use to, uh, to experientially uh, shift our, our perspective? Maybe enlightenment's too big a word, but uh, are there some particular practices we can do uh, other than just sitting? Just sitting might be the very practice that, that opens us most naturally to this new perspective of the mind itself as Buddha. Uh, but not necessarily. So, uh, what we, what we might find in just sitting is that we can even let go of uh, thoughts um, to some extent anyway, settle into the present, we're relaxed, we're calm, we're open, we feel less sense of, strong sense of a separate self, quite naturally. Um, but, uh, but this particular shift of perspective, I would say it's a, it's a pretty significant shift of perspective especially if we're talking about the, the shift from I feel myself to be on some deep level. Even if I don't believe it intellectually, I feel as if I am truly this body and these thoughts and these habitual tendencies and this karmic consciousness. And, uh, to shift from that perspective to I am boundless space-like awareness that includes everything sounds like a pretty big shift of perspective. It might not naturally dawn on us in, uh, by just sitting. So are there, are there any methods we can use? And uh, I would propose that uh, there are. Like, like inquiry, meditative inquiry. Vipassana. Vipassana can mean that um, inquiry leading up to a shift of perspective, and Vipassana can also mean the insight that is the result of the inquiry. And it can come in many forms, but it's kind of like, it's curiously and, um, and intently um, exploring and questioning how things are in our own experience, not in a kind of abstract way. So far, our talking has been kind of an abstract way. So, um, so I, I find for myself, I like to use this, this meditative inquiry in, in zazen and outside of zazen. And uh, there's some particular lines of questioning that I find uh, over, over the years. Um, for me, for this person, these ones really work. They're almost like, I almost feel like they're like foolproof. I, I, you know. But, but I, I want to acknowledge that different methods work for different people, actually. So this might not, might be like, oh, why would you ask like this? But I get it like this. That's always part of our tradition is, is there's many entrances. But since, since this one is so dear to my heart and, and, uh, and I feel like 
is as sim I feel like anyway, it's as simple as possible to get to a very profound um, shift of perspective that I'll present this morning. Those of you who've been here in the past years um, have heard these kind of things before because it's not really changing so much. I, I find it's so good for me <laughs> that I have no reason to look for um, others. And I think it, if it works a little bit, then I think it's nice to kind of stay with the method and work it deeper and deeper. And that's what I find with these particular questions. Um, I can keep asking them and they go, they, they, they take it deeper. So um, with this meditative inquiry, these questionings, it's, it's, it's helpful to be, um, to be open-minded and, and curious and kind of like, even if it's like, well, I have my own practice that really works, but um, I'm open for trying something new because Dharma gates are boundless and I'm proud to enter all of them. So uh, some spirit of curiosity and openness and flexibility, if, if it sounds strange, I think these are all necessary prerequisites. And, uh, and also, um, Kind of shifting modes from how we've been talking so far, quite like what were all these quotes from the tradition and seeing how the history plays out, and I think all this is important, all this has been in the background, but now I'm sort of shifting into let's ask these things not in a theoretical sense, but in a directly experiential sense. Apply these questions to our own experience in a very naive kind of way, I think helps. As if we're like a little child asking questions. And we might assume the answers, we might know the answers, because we've already been talking about it. But, um, but to ask these questions as if we don't know the answers. And that's, a, that's the trick of why you can keep asking the same questions over and over, but if you just like, oh yeah, I know that, it's like, then it doesn't do anything, it doesn't function. So, so I find I can keep asking the same questions. They're like, they're basically like, um, they're like instructions to attention. They're instructions to the mind to like move in different directions. So it's like even though the mind has done this, this shift or move many times, it's like, here's it again, like, we have to actually do it again. Do it a little, try a little shift. So um, with all that in mind, the basic question, and this is nice when we're pretty quiet and still during zazen, but, but the more we get used to it, all these questions can be asked during the day, and the, again, the more we get used to it, we can maybe even ask them in, a, in, a, in the middle of total chaos. I think if we first ask them in a the chaotic, busy, stressful, emotional situation, it's too, we can't do it, it's too hard. But if we get used to them in stillness and feel how they, these shifts happen, then just hearing the words, remembering the words in a chaotic situation, we may be able to still make these shifts. So the first question I like is, uh, is awareness present right now? You could also ask it like, uh, am I aware? But uh, I think if I'm looking for the 
words that are like the most simple and least complicated you can say. Am I aware? Then it gets into this question of well, what am I? It's aware. There's two different things. It's just a, is awareness present? Um, it seems so straightforward. And also, awareness here, we might say, was the Buddha mind, the non-dual awareness? I don't know about that. But let's just keep it simple and just say, basic knowing. Whether it's dualistic or not, let's not get into that yet when we ask the first question. Is awareness present now? It may be dualistic consciousness. That's okay. It may be non-dual awareness. They're not so different, actually. And the further questions will tease them apart. So, synonyms of awareness, I would say, are knowing, not conceptual knowing, but just basic cognizance of knowing, or uh, experiencing, or knowing, very different flavor than the word awareness, because awareness is a noun. You might start looking for some thing, because nouns are things, but experiencing uh, is a verb. It's an activity, it's a process, it's how can you grasp experiencing? But is experiencing present right now? Is there experiencing? Now, I ask this question as if we don't know the answer, and I check <laughs> to see in our own um, being right now. Is there experiencing? Now, if we say, I'm not sure, then I would say, uh, well, if there wasn't experiencing happening, then you wouldn't be able to hear these words, you wouldn't see anything, you wouldn't be able to think anything, you wouldn't be able to ask that question. Experiencing just means uh, all those things that I just mentioned we're aware of. Right? So there must be an awareness of sights and sounds and, and thinking and feeling. And, uh, there must be an ex all those things are called experiences. Sights and sounds and thoughts and feelings are experiences. So if the experiences are happening, if there's any experience happening, which there is always putting aside things like deep dreaming of sleep. There's always experience happening. And uh, therefore, there must be an experiencing of it. Yeah? See, the difference between experience is an event that's happening in time and place. It's an object of mind, experience. But experiencing is what those experiences are happening to, or are happening in. Is there experiencing right now? Can, can you um, say yes <laughs> to that question? You might say, it's just a weird thing here because there I, from this description I know that there must be experiencing happening, but I can't see it. That's right. 
We can't see it. We can't grasp it. We can't know it as, a, as an object, the way we know everything else, the way we know all experiences. Experiencing is not an experience. And yet, isn't it strange that there's something present right now, without a doubt, that's not an experience? Can you follow? It's called experiencing, or awareness. Is experiencing present right now for, for me, for you? Do you feel, do you feel um, the certainty that it is? Does anyone not feel a definitive yes <laughs> to this question? You're welcome to say it now, because then we can, uh, then we can keep talking about it. Because because we don't, um, if we don't can't say yes with certainty, they're def they're definitely experiencing happening. I have no idea what it is. I can't get a hold of it. It's very strange because usually if someone asks, is um, is there sound happening? I can I can say that. And, yeah, it's that it's that particular thing of ba da ba 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 but um, it's not like that and yet can we say yes for sure if we're not if we can't um, definitively say yes I, there's a there's a confirmation that there is experiencing an awareness right now even though I can't say what it is then we then the next questions won't make any sense and we can't really go on Everybody on board so far? Amazing. <laughs> this, so, this is so ordinary, right? <laughs> and yet, I think already something profound has happened. But what I would say is, um, most people probably would never ask this question in their entire life. It's such a stupid question. <laughs> it's, so, it's like, of course, there's experiences happen, but so what? Um, but I think this is the beginning of something very profound, to just ask this question. You really need to ask this question. Uh, for example, the fact that we can definitively say yes, I, I know for sure, for certain that... Um, Experiencing is happening. There's some kind of awareness, presence, uh, um, knowing here, um, and yet I can't grasp it as a thing. That yes, is, you could say, is a, like a confirmation or a verification of, of a truth that's not conceptual. It's a non-conceptual verification. Just this simple thing of like, is awareness present? Yes. I'm confirming that, but not, I'm not confirming it as an idea. Like, is two plus two four? Yes, I know that for sure. That's a conceptual verification. This is a non-conceptual verification. That's, I think, very cool, because there's not that many times we, we, we can have a non-conceptual confirmation or verification, and, um, and be able to like understand what that means. Can you, to illustrate that, can you is there a single other 
<laughs> I'm not looking for verification. Yeah. Yes, there are some more that are that are these other questions. Oh. Yeah, they're coming. <laughs> but this is maybe the most basic one. Yeah. Yeah, we can have. Like, I wouldn't say this is enlightenment exactly. That would be a little too easy, right? But um, but but uh, they they do speak of Buddha speak of enlightenment is a non-conceptual verification. And Dogen speaks of practice realization, show that show is literally um, translated as verification or confirmation. And I would propose this is exactly the kind of verification we're talking about. What is show? Shu means practice, practice like a spiritual practice or cultivation, and show often we translate it as realization or enlightenment, practice enlightenment. It's naturally undefiled, we chanted this morning. But I like translating it literally, that show means verification or confirmation. So, and, and one of Dogen's trademark sayings, practice and verification are not two. And I would say that can apply to different, different, um, different practices and verifications. Here, I think this is an example of Shusho. There's a practice of asking this question, is awareness present? And there's a verification of the answer, yes. And the, the asking the question, the practice of asking this, and the verification of yes are not two. It's not like, you might say that the question seems to lead up to that non-conceptual verification called yes. But, um, the more we kind of, once we get, you know, this is slowly talking about it, as we um, get used to this, we can ask the question, and immediately, is it really present? Immediately the yes is already there. You follow that? Practice and realization are not, practice and verification are not too. So a little, a little taste of also what's to come. Because enlightenment is more like um, uh, a direct, non-conceptual verification of emptiness or non-duality, you could say, or not-self, and all these nice dharma things. So this is, I would say, in this method, this is the first question. And then, once we get that yes, and can confirm that yes, and we can, then we can replicate this experiment multiple times. <laughs> and confirm it again and again. And in fact, as we get, if we keep doing it, it, uh, it, it, it I find it starts to even make more sense. I'm like, wow, this is really, this is, um, again, it's not exactly enlightenment, but this little, pra this little practice verification is not an accident. Right? So we're deciding to do something, and there's a result. So, um, um, and a little, I would say, I would call that a little insight. For me, that feels like an insight. Well, awareness is present, and before I asked the question, I actually didn't notice. Because I was paying attention to experiences all day long. We were paying attention to experiences of colors, and sounds, and smells, and thoughts, and emotions, and bodily sensations. All these experiences. That's what dominates our life and all the complexity of that. That's what we're attending to, focused on. Meanwhile, awareness is always there, of course. 
experiencing, it's experiencing all of that, but it's kind of in the background. We're just, in other words, we're not paying attention to it. We're paying attention to the experiences in the foreground. So now we're asking this very unusual question about the background. <laughs> is experiencing present? Yeah, it is. It's so boring. <laughs> experiences are interesting. <laughs> but experiencing is nothing nothing at all, really. It's just but it is present, okay. Um, I think that's partly why we, most people might in their whole life never ask this question because it's like so right. <laughs> It's so uninteresting. Um, but it can get more interesting. So first um, we ask this question and we can get used to this first one and, uh, and really um, confirm again and again awareness is present. Already, um, you, I feel anyway when I do this, I can feel it, that's a sh- it's already a shift in perspective because our perspective is usually on experiences, that question creates a slight shift. And maybe you can start examining the qualities of this shift um, when you ask and confirm with that. Like, I, I think some qualities of that shift, if I'm really kind of like obsessing about some thought, right, say zazen or zazen, and then I happen to ask that question, is there an experiencing right now? And there's kind of a turning back to the um, space that, that, that this session is happening in, there's a little bit of re- more relaxation. I'll be like sort of a side effect of this single question. So a little bit like, ah, there's a little bit more space. In fact, there's this, another name for this experience in this space, right? Luminous space uh, of awareness. And now we're just attending a little bit more to that. And uh, it's a little bit more relaxing. It's a little more spacious. Because now we're noticing the space that was almost there. And another important point here is that um, the experiences, like the colors and sounds and all, don't have to disappear, you might say. Is awareness present? That means I have to stop thinking and stop feeling and hearing and seeing. No, no, no. We can't really stop. Almost never can stop those things. It's just shifting the attention away from the experiences to the space of experiencing. So in first, the experiencing is in the background. It's always there, but we just don't notice. And the experiences are in the foreground. The shift reverses that. So now the experiencing is slightly more in the foreground. And the experiences are still happening but they recede a little bit to the background. They're still happening. We're just shifting our focus. And granted, it's a little bit hard to to do this because um, we're so used to, the mind is so used to focusing on experiences that we're now being asked to focus on what's not an experience. It's a disconcerting. And yet, at the same time, it might seem a little tricky. At the same time, it's like the simplest thing ever. Like, is experiencing present? Is awareness present? I would even say it's the one question that we can always answer yes 
definitively and without any doubt. And if then someone comes to us and says, are you sure about that? Is awareness really present now? Like if we know what we're, if we understand what we're talking about, we'd say like, you can never convince me that it's not. It's like, well, maybe it's not. No, you can't convince me. Any kind of like philosophy, proof or logic to say that, well, awareness might not be present. It's like, I don't care what you say. This is direct, direct experiential verification. No one can talk me out of it. Not even a Buddha. <laughs> That's like, it was a confidence experience of his brain. If we say, is it non-dual or non-back, and we have a little tricky, right? But some sort of conscious knowing is present. It might be dualistic. Probably is, in fact. <laughs> but uh, dualistic just means there's a knowing of objects, so let's say. Is awareness present? Yes, but the awareness is also listening to sounds that seem to be outside of itself. So that awareness is temporarily called dualistic consciousness. It's fine, because its actual nature is not dual awareness. And that, that's what we have to unravel. Yes? How do you, um, what happens when you, in your experiencing, you fall into there being a duality between the experiencer. Yeah, 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 it seems like an experiencer. Um, if we feel like there's an experiencer, meaning like some, something located in the vicinity of the body and the head, feel that's how the experiencer feels to me. The hearer, the seer, is behind the eyes and the ears, for example. The, the, the feeler of my little toe is like located in this particular body. Right? That's so maybe a sense of an experiencer as a subject. And uh, we can say, is there an experiencing of the experiencer of the sense of subjectivity? Yes, I feel like there's somebody here experiencing things. Well, is there an experiencing of that sense? It's a sense of a subject, right? It's a little, this is a little tricky and the experiencer of a sound, which is an object. Yeah. I propose there can be an experiencing of the sense of subjectivity. And experiencing is just, really doesn't have subjectivity or objectivity, although at this point it might feel like it's an experiencing of a thing called subject. It's, it's called stability consciousness. That's okay. So, on board so far. Ready for the next question? I have one. Uh, so it seems like a lot of times we're multitasking mm -hmm. in our brain mm -hmm. about things. And so that would be a way, you know, maybe you're deciding we're going for a hike. Mm -hmm. But we go for the hike and we never were really there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because yeah. we're. That's right. through a bunch of stuff in our head. Yeah, it can get so, so complicated. If you ask that, mm -hmm. then that brings you back to your awareness and experiencing the hiking that you were doing at the time. Yeah, it could. And, and it's, if we're really multitasking a lot of different things at once, it's quite hard to ask. Adding the question adds it another task. So it might be a little tricky, but it's potential, especially as we get more used to it. 
we can ask. And maybe another way to talk about it would be, um, we're multitasking, we're really busy, we're feeling stressed. We ask the question, is there an experiencing of multitasking? Would be the question. There's multitasking, there's this experience called this, this array, this complex, multifaceted experience called multitasking. Is there an awareness of multitasking? Is there an um, experiencing space in which all the tasks are happening? Maybe how we approach it. And then I think it's true that then from the hike, thinking about these things, we maybe notice the hike more, but it could even be the hike is part of the multitask. We're trying to pay attention to the flowers and think about what's tomorrow and think about what the other person thinks about me that's sticking with me. So we might just be like, all that can still be happening, and is there an experience of all? Experiencing of the hike, the flower, the person, the tomorrow, thought, all of it. It's always going to, there's only going to be one awareness, of, one experiencing in this model of all the different experiences. It seems like when you have asked the question, is there experiencing? There may be like different things may pop up as the experiences, mm -hmm. but when you say is there experiencing and you say yes, it doesn't actually mean that those experiences are real. Yeah, yeah. we don't like, need to get into real or unreal yeah. at this point, but yes, it doesn't mean anything except that there's experiencing. We Which might is, even ask. Right, it's non-falsifiable. You can't. That's right. Yeah, we might say, are there are there experiences? If we start asking. Is there really sound enough? That I maybe have some doubt about. Especially if I've heard things like the heart suture that says no sound and no color. But, um, but so I might have, or, or for example, I think another nice thing to bring in here is like, um, well, what if I'm dreaming now? And this could be a dream. Because when we're dreaming at night, uh, it feels real, right? So I'm not, if somebody said, are you sure you're not dreaming? I would say, I'm pretty sure I'm not, but not like 100%. I'm 95% sure that I'm not dreaming, but I'm open to the fact that I, I could be about to wake up in Hawaii. <laughs> and it was a dream for awesome. So um, I'm not completely sure, but even if it's a dream, and, and somebody asked, well, is the awareness present? And said, whether it's a dream or not, I'm not so sure. But whether it's a dream or not, awareness is present. Experiencing is present. So that's like the bottom line. That one I can say 100%. Say, what if we're just a computer simulation right now? Well, maybe. But, uh, but, but there's an experiencing that's undeniable. It reminds me of the story you told yesterday, I think, about the monk who lost his head. Yeah. Like we're focusing the our attention on the experiencing, on the awareness, mm -hmm. and it seems like he's looking for that source as well. Yeah, the yeah. source of awareness. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think one. I think one of the the various um, pitfalls we can, even though it sounds very simple, I think one of the common um, um, hindrances to answering this question and not getting confused is people often think like this awareness is supposed to 
feel or look like something, it's supposed to have some objective qualities because we're so used to that that we feel like, I'm not quite sure because if you ask me to say, is this copyright, I'd say yes, but is experiencing happening, I can't see it, so that's why I'm not sure. But that's important to know that it will never look like anything or even feel like anything or taste like anything or um, even feel like anything, right? So it's really non-objective. And yet, we might say, well, I lost touch with it. But then we can say, I, I thought I had some sense of it, but I, I feel like I'm not lost touch with it. Why am I experiencing now? Well, is there experiencing happening? Yeah, 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 there is. So then we're like, it's so strange. I feel like I lost touch with it, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm confirming it without a doubt. It's so strange. That's the kind of thing. So then, um, if we can say definitively yes, the next question is sort of a follow-up question. I, I find like um, has another particular effect. Almost the same, but, but this next question is, um, once we've said yes, try to be in the space. Is awareness present? Is experiencing present? Yes. Now, um, what is it that knows experiencing is present? We do know experiencing is present, without a doubt, right? But what is it that actually can just confirm that? What is it that could say yes so definitively? Or we could ask it like, how is it that this awareness is known? How is it that it's confirmed? Maybe, maybe better, I think the question may be a little more accurate to say. What is it that um, confirms awareness is present? It's a little bit deeper, we have to be really present to ask, and yet it's not so tricky there. Try to not, not jump to conclusions or what that we think the answer might be, but in our own experience, ask this, like, yes, awareness is present, I know. Nobody can convince me otherwise. Now, what is it that knows that so completely? If you had to, if you had to express it, any thoughts? Responses. Expansive. Expansive is what knows it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an, or ex, there's an expansiveness yeah. that, uh, that knows it. Yeah. It feels like an infinite recursion to me. That mm-hmm. Like you're just, you're looking for the thing that is experiencing and the thing that knows that, but then you go, it almost like circles around. You just... Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it feels like that. And any other, any other responses? So I think those two are are nice. So I think another name for this um, experiencing or awareness has various names, right? Another name for it I would propose is expansiveness. Like space, we've been talking about. So then. If we say, what is it that knows that? We say, expansiveness. I would propose that's not some different expansiveness. 
than the expansiveness that is known. So I think that's it's a, it's correct. I would say experientially for me it is expansiveness, but the expansiveness knows the expansiveness, and then then we have your point of like now is that a, is it two is it one expansiveness um, that confirms another expansiveness, and then there's another expansiveness that confirms that. Now we, but that's maybe at first how it it feels. Because and it, I think in a way, the reason it feels that way is because we're so used to a subject knowing an object. So there must be another subject that knows this object. But expansiveness is such a great word here because expansiveness, like complete expansiveness, like space, right, is um, if it's all inclusive, which I would propose it is, there can't be another space that knows this space. In other words, uh, I would propose what's actually happening, but this is maybe an unusual thing, but see if it rings true in your experience, is that awareness is confirming that it is aware. And there are not two of them. There's not like a, a subtle, deeper awareness confirming a surface awareness. That's a kind of duality. There's one awareness that's confirming itself, which is why we sometimes call it self-knowing awareness, or self-illuminating awareness. That's a, that's a thing that it does that, that now getting nothing else does this. Nothing else illuminates self. And there's some, you know, in the Buddhist tradition there's some arguments about this kind of thing. <laughs> like there's can a, um, can a finger touch itself? You know, the people who are kind of against self-cognizant knowing are saying that's impossible because a finger can't touch itself, a, um, a, an eye can't see itself. So how could awareness know itself? But um, in that centuries-old debate, there are many who say, and of which I'm in the camp, that seems to me like in direct experience, there is awareness that's knowing itself. Now I think when we get into the, because it's seen some sutras and all about the finger touching itself, I would say dualistic consciousness means there's always an object. And so that one can't know itself, because then it wouldn't be dualistic consciousness anymore. So I think that's, I would prefer when you find in the sutras can dualistic consciousness know itself? No, because then it would not be dualistic consciousness anymore. Self-knowing awareness is not is by its definition not dualistic. It's like a it's like a calculus problem where the limit on the subject is expanding to the infinite, mm-hmm. and the sub and the object is collapsing to zero at the same time. You know. Yeah, like that. <laughs> or we could even say it the other way around. The object is expanding infinitely and the subject is collapsing to zero. But there has to be, or, or we could say the, um, the object collapses into the subject, or the subject collapses into the object. And uh, um, kind of like mind-only type teachings, are, I think, are collapsing the object into the subject. And there's other... Buddha teachings that are collapsing the subject into the object. 
for example, there's a classic one of the teaching to Bahia in the early sutras, you might have heard where the Buddha says, in the seen, there will be just the seen. In the heard, there will be just the heard. In the cognized, there will be just the cognized. I think that's an example of collapsing the subject into the object. In other words, in, this see, in the seen cup, there's only the seen cup. There's no subject. There's just the seen. And, and if we say, actually the cup is just mind, that's collapsing the object into the subject. And it doesn't matter which way it goes. <coughs> the result is the same. The collapse is the same. Collapse into non-duality. So, um, so, this, so remember now, this is the first question. And see how they, they kind of work together, the first question. Is awareness present now? Yes. Then the second question is, what is it that knows that? Or, or how is it that that is known so definitively? Especially this yes is so confident. What is it that's so, that can so confidently confirm? Well, awareness itself, there's no other, we could say conceptual thought, can, can, not when we're talking about it, conceptual thought, or after we do the first question, yeah, I, Tokyo, know that awareness is present. That's a conceptual confirmation. Right? And you say, who's confirming it? I, Tokyo, the, the conceptual mind is confirming. That may be true, too. But before we get into that, what is it that's, that could say yes in this, in this non-conceptual way? How is it? It's just the awareness itself. It's confirming itself and verifying itself. And that, in fact, nothing else can verify this space of awareness other than the awareness itself. Our conceptual mind has been trying for a couple of days with Dogen's help and all to conceptually verify these things. But now um, we're, try we're trying to do the um, non-conceptual verification. Could you say non-forgetfulness is that that knows that awareness is present? Non-forgetfulness. Yeah, I think when, when we really taste it as a yes, awareness is present, at that time it's a kind of non-forgetfulness or remembering. But we might even say that awareness is confirming itself as present, or awareness is illuminating itself, even when we're forgetting. Like, I'm totally multitasking, I'm like caught up in all these activities. Meanwhile, in the background, awareness is illuminating itself. In other words, um, it's never lost. But I, the person, the, the, um, this, this subjective, limited Kokyo person, he forgets. But awareness never forgets itself and never stops illuminating itself. It's never lost, but it feels like it seems like it's lost from my point of view as Kokyo. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, a, a nice insight here that kind of goes along with these, these first two questions is like, when we, when we uh, confirm that awareness is present, we could also ask, like, before I noticed it, was it there already? Or was it non-existent? And when I looked for it, it suddenly popped into existence. I think we have the sense that actually it was there before. So we can explore this, but... It didn't just pop into existence, it was always there. 
just want to talk about it. ever-present. <laughs> Maybe we should go there at this point about, well, has it always been there? But um, maybe this comes later. But it seems like it's, at least it was there before we asked. Um, <coughs> are we all on board so far? Uh, okay. So then, um, like in Zazen or something, we can ask, and we can, we can kind of like try to um, extend our um, confirmation. Maybe you could say confirmation comes in this one moment. Yes. But we have this, that kind of confidence that awareness is present. Let's see if we can kind of like, um, not just to let it be one moment and then, okay, back to multitasking. Huh. That was cool. Now back to my problem. Especially in Zazen, we don't have to multitask. <laughs> we can like, um, this would be one version of Zazen is like, is awareness present? Yes. But then like a thought comes up and like, oh yeah, I saw here. So then like, um, kind of like, ask it again. You could say we could letting go of thought again and again is would be one practice thought arises, let go. Another similar practice would be is awareness present? Yes. Yeah. Kind of lost in thought again. Is awareness present? And we can uh, maybe sense some um, kind of rest in it a little bit more, extend the confirmation or extend the appreciation that awareness is present. Again, it doesn't mean we have to stop thinking. We're just like remember it's a it's a shift of it's a shift of attention. Thoughts are happening, feelings are happening, sounds are happening, but I'm intentionally attending to the space in which they're happening, the known space. It's kind of a zazen practice, right? And it's you know, it's a it's a training we can do to like um, extend that or train the mind to keep attending to that. And and also I think at least I find that. Luckily, it's kind of enjoyable to do this. In fact, I'd say it's even more enjoyable than multitasking. <laughs> Sometimes we feel like, oh, I have to multitask. But in Zazen, we really don't. Right? We might feel like we have to, but, um, but uh, let's say, like, actually, this is very, um, what a relief, what a rest, what a spacious expansiveness. I can appreciate in zazen, even while thoughts are happening. That's why it's a little different from how we sometimes might talk of zazen. I thought about we'll just let go of it because what we're really aiming for is um, not thinking. We're really letting go of thought. This is more like it's it's a little more non-dual because all this stuff is, all these experiences are happening, totally fine, no problem. We don't want to get overwhelmed by them to the extent that we can't remember to ask the question, but um, kind of integration. Experience is happening, but we're, 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 it's a meditation called attending to the presence of awareness. Uh, and, then, and then also a danger here is we start attributing some, some objective qualities to awareness. We might start to feel like it's like a a luminous sphere that kind of could be quite subtle. It probably will be quite subtle because it's not some graspable thing, but we're, our tendency, our habitual tendency to 
attend to objects and grasp the objects is so strong that we are like, yeah, awareness, and it's like, it's like filling the room, or, or even to any of these metaphors, we start to take the metaphor to literally like space. It is the physical space of um, it's, it's filling the room. Uh, it's very, I think space is my favorite metaphor. Parnirvana Sutra over and over again uses space as the metaphor for human nature and a lot of the ancestors. But we're not talking about physical space here. It's it's cognitive space. Very similar. But, um, or light is another metaphor. You might feel like, yeah, I'm in touch with awareness because things feel more luminous or light. Well, no, we're not talking about physical light or physical space. But it's close to that. You know, those are would be tendencies to subtly objectify experience. Because we're trying to conceptualize exactly. a conceptual thing. Exactly, right? exactly. So just notice those tendencies and then, oh, the sense of like kind of light or luminosity. What is it that knows this luminosity? That's the question will always bring us back to like, oh yeah, the luminosity is slightly objective, but the knowing of it is has no light or dark. So then, um, we can just practice like, that's already, I think, a great practice to uh, just keep keep um, familiarizing with that. And all kinds of implications will come. But there are more questions, because the still, I would say, might be um, a kind of a dualistic consciousness. Yeah. Um, yeah. The first question seems more accessible to me, the direct as a non-conceptual mm-hmm. experience, and yeah. the second because it's it's the what, what is it, mm-hmm. is this kind of language and implication that it is yeah. thing, mm-hmm. and because uh, I, I love these kind of teachings mm-hmm. and work with them sometimes, but is that common for that to? Do you have a tip on? Um, uh, not turning it into a thing with that mm. question. Mm. Maybe what if what if for you what if you ask the question, how is it known? How is this awareness known? That sounds more like a process. Yeah. Like when you yeah. say yeah. experiencing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a process, which is yeah. in a way something that's um, but it seems like a it's little really ungraspable. Yeah, less graspable. Yeah. So how is it known? Maybe less of a trap to get into what is it, like there's something that knows it, how is it known, you know, um, or, uh, or let's say, um, um, how, can there, how can there be such confidence that awareness is present now? Yeah. I think something that's helped me is um, just realize that, the, that I'm st- coming from the starting point of language and that it yeah. is like a springboard but I'm, I don't want to like limit myself or I mean just there's yeah. some kind of recognition that okay this is the starting point mm-hmm. um, and then I don't know uh, well I think language is yeah as always language is inherently dualistic mm-hmm. so these are like you know like I'm always working on trying to refine these questions that you're helping me right now just mm-hmm. you know to be What's the difference between what and how? Yeah. But but it is like the language will 
you know, we have to take that language kind of lightly. Yeah. That we, it's, it's a method, it's a finger pointing at the moon, right? right. It's, 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 the, it's, we're watching the effect that it has without getting too literal or caught in it. And all the Zen teachings are like that, I think, too. That's why they sound so weird sometimes, that like, it's just pointers. Um, and, The, the words take us, the conceptual words take the mind to a kind of non-conceptual place. But sometimes words can be that are useful for that. It seems like the answers, if you're responding, that how do you keep, say you practice this over time, mm -hmm. um, you know how a practice can become a habit. And so can yes. your responses become habitual? Yes. You say, are you experiencing? Yep. Yep, I'm experiencing. Yep. Good one, okay. good one. Um, that definitely happens, yeah. So that's part of the trick is when you first do it, like many things, the first time it's very fresh. First time is awesome. And then what about keeping that regular practice year after year? It starts to become loader. Habitual, yeah. and it's like, what, what happened to my beginner's mind, right? So it's Suzuki Roshi talks about beginner's mind, and it's why it's like really open and naive and childlike. So how to keep that spirit is, is yeah, knowing that that's, that's a, a pitfall. Um, how do we ask it like as if we're a, a child that doesn't know the answer? That's the trick to ask. If it becomes a rope, okay, here we go, when you're practice, is wearing a present? Yeah, yeah, it is. Okay, what knows it? Awareness knows it, yeah. It's like, then it's like nothing. It right. So slowly and naively and almost like stupidly, as if we don't know. Um, yeah, that's good. You need a metaphorical kyosuko or the whatever yes. stick, the right. same stick to yeah. like yeah. whack. Yeah, yeah. To kind of whack yourself out of the habit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fresh. Or maybe it. another question. How are you keeping it fresh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or some, you know, some other question mm -hmm. to stimulate. Yeah. That. Maybe we, are we, you we try new by questions. <laughs> yeah. And we can try on new questions if we get bored with one. We can, you know, Zen has more poetic versions of the same thing. They're less precise and they can confuse people. So this is just the straightforward, like, no frills version. But Zen has questions like, what was your original face before your parents were born? It's the same yeah, question, that's but it's yeah. fancier, sounding. <laughs> but but once you get the hang of the no frills one, then then we can add in some frills for, to keep it fresh. And uh, oh, the other point, one the thing that I wanted to mention that I forgot and just popped into mind is that um, right now it's coming packaged in all these words. But as we get used to this. Maybe we don't even have to ask it in words at all. Is yeah, awareness present? Really, we're yeah. just sitting, and we're just we're really used to this meditation, so we're just we just look. Yeah. Is aware? You know, we look, and there's awareness. So the words are kind of like uh, kind of training wheels. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So there's more um, words that that like we're we're gonna go to the next steps, and you know if if it gets complicated here. Just these, just the first question is plenty. It's great. And the second, what I feel like the second question does, 
it's almost the same. I feel like it drives home the, the yes of the first question. It drives home the insight. It kind of, it, mm -hmm. it, um, it, makes it, it makes, if things are a little bit weird, yes, awareness is present, but that's weird. So this is like, the second one is like, it, confirm, it confirms the, uh, the self illuminating quality of awareness. Like it reinforces it. Yeah, it reinforces it. It reinforces it. And it kind of, I think it breaks down duality a little bit here, right? Because if we can really see that there's not a second awareness that knows the first awareness, now we're really um, opening to the possibility of a non-dual awareness. Now, the third question is, um, the problem is here now we still have all these objective experiences like thoughts and feelings and colors and sounds. So it's starting, we're, we're going to now, and that's what creates the duality, is these, it seems like these objective experiences. So we're going to start investigating the relationship of experiences to the experiencing. And I find a nice way to do this is to start with, we're already in touch with this space, this unpassable space of knowing. Then um, to start investigating, again, not as an idea, but as much as possible, we're in, we're resting in the knowing of knowing. And uh, from this perspective, does this awareness, does this experiencing have any edges or boundaries? And um, so that, to answer the question, we actually look for edges or boundaries. Don't jump to a conclusion that it does or doesn't, but like, um, you could ask it in different ways. I think that's a nice way to ask because it's like, um, it's a strain, maybe these would get progressively stranger. Does it have any boundaries? We start to think like, well, it's not something in the first place. <laughs> I mean, things that have boundaries are, um, have spatial dimension. Boundaries or edges generally refers to like, like a cup as its edge or boundary. And, um, but this is not something, it's not a physical thing. It's not even physical space, remember, it's very much like space. But space is a good metaphor because space actually doesn't have any boundaries. Right? Space is vast and, and so this, this inner space or this, um, this knowing space of awareness, uh, when we look for it, when we look for edges or boundaries, it almost starts to seem like an absurd question. But we can stay with it for a while. I think this one maybe we, we stay, we stay, really, really explore, look for what a boundary might be. And I almost found like, how could there be um, any boundaries? Or we could also ask, how big is it? It's almost the same question. If it has a size, if it's like very large, like five miles across, <laughs> then it has boundaries. If it's a if it's a million miles across, if it like goes to the farthest reaches of our galaxy, then it has a size. So it's limited. So it can't be limited to like the size of our galaxy. But it actually it doesn't have a size at all. It's not like it's really, really big. We call it big mind because Suzuki Roshi calls it big mind because it's not small. <laughs> but 
maybe big is is a little inaccurate because it's 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 dimensionless. Just like space is not big, actually, space is dimensionless. So there's one line in the dual mirror samadhi, this chat we do, talking dual mirror samadhi is another name for this awareness, I would say. And it says, the line is like, um, so, um, so minute it fits into spacelessness, so small it fits into spacelessness, so vast it's beyond, utterly beyond location, or it transcends dimension. So we can say, we can think of it as infinitely large, or we can think of it as just like one point. It could just be one, it's, it doesn't fit into categories of dimensionality. Therefore, it has no boundaries or edges. Um. I'd like to express my appreciation of these teachings again and something that is not with me, not being recognized by what's happening here, um, but that there's glimpses of is this kind of impersonal awareness. Um, that it's just like, it's, it's the same awareness coming from a different perspective, seeing different objects. Whereas mm -hmm. I could see totally different objects going from here to a movie theater or something, or I have seen totally different objects since, you know, remembering when I was six years old yeah. to now, it's just like that same awareness. So mm -hmm. it makes me feel really, or I feel really close to you, like seeing yeah. uh, your, that awareness yeah. is seeing this yeah. from that, that perspective. So these are some of the questions that are coming, is investigating like, the space between us and so Yeah, yeah. but I guess, um, yeah, and like you say, impersonal. I think that's true. It's um, it starts to feel like impersonal, and experientially it starts to feel impersonal. Like the person, which is this collection of body and thoughts and feelings and history and memory and so on. That person is a set of experiences that are happening in awareness. So in that sense. It's not a, awareness is not a quality of a person, more like a person's kind of a quality, an aspect or quality of the awareness. Um, maybe I should ask a question as after making my statement. Um, huh. like, uh, can you say something about transmission in terms of like these teachings? Um, I don't know. Is is it enough to just ask on their own. I guess each person will find out for themselves like what Yeah, it's a person it's a it, you know, each of us can investigate the answers to these questions. And um, this it's a transmission is um, is what's happening right now. Yeah. So let me go on, some more questions. Okay. Sorry. So um, I, I have a question about when you talk about quantifying this experience Mm -hmm. How is that different than trying to quantify any mental object? Um, like if I say, how big is my uh, desire? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have the same kind of stumbling. Oh, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. But it, but this this experience seems different because it's mm -hmm. not attached to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, even if you say like desire, some experience like that, a, a mental experience, um, it doesn't have a size, but we might feel that it has like boundaries. 
for example, the desire began at a certain time and it ended at a certain time and stopped, right? So those are kind of boundaries. Those are um, temporal boundaries. Mm -hmm. And then physical things have spatial boundaries. But you're right, mental things don't have spatial boundaries, but they might have temporal boundaries. Or you could say the, the mental experience of the cup it's, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's an experience that we're having with the cup, and the experience of the cup seems to have edges. Right? It almost seems like there's a knowing that reaches out and touches the cup. Mm -hmm. It's called dualistic consciousness. So, um, so the experience of, of desire or, or any mental kind of mm -hmm. process is dualistic in the sense of, of that you're reaching out. It, You're reaching out for it, and that since it's dualistic, it's an object. It's known by experiencing. We know desire, right? Right. We experience. There's an experience of desire, and and that has a kind of boundary and an edge in time. But experiencing of the desire doesn't have a boundary. Yeah. So, um, so right now we're just we're just exploring does. This, this spacious experiencing having edges and boundaries, and we can't. Um, I propose we, we won't find any. And if there's another um, uh, nice point here, if we feel like we have some sense of a boundary or an edge, like we might feel like my awareness feels like it fills this room, but it doesn't go through the wall or something, we could say. If, <laughs> it stops here. Yeah, well, my, my visual consciousness seems to end at the wall, but, but knowing doesn't isn't limited to the raw material. But if we feel like it does, then we feel like the edge, an edge or boundary in time and space of this awareness, that edge or boundary is called an experience. It's an experience of an edge or boundary, right? And we, we, then we ask the question, what is it that's experiencing this? This subtle sense of edge or boundary. It's, a, it's the awareness or experiencing. Does the experiencing of the boundary have a boundary? Mm. Yeah, well, these are just kind of subtle questions. Is it really a boundary? That's right. Or is it just a concept of because I know there right. and there are walls, there's exactly. a Exactly, exactly. So any boundary or edge. No boundary. Yep. It's, it's without boundaries and completely expansive. Anything that we could call a boundary or an edge is just that. It's an experience. It's a, it's a conceptual, really it's a conceptual experience. But even if we have some, like a sensory boundary of contact or something, even that it's happening in um, awareness or in um, experiencing. So um, that's exactly what we, the conclusion we come to is that any sense of edge or boundary is a, is a, objective experience and the experiencing of a boundary <laughs> doesn't have any boundary so that's like you might have to you know these are weird questions right so we have to keep checking them out in our own experience and explore like it I feel like this is like we're exploring our experience very intimately it's an inner exploration that most people wouldn't bother doing well, it's like you were saying yesterday that we think of our awareness as being located in our mind and contained in our brain. Mm -hmm. But you can change that. Yeah, so that would be an example. Expanding awareness and infinitely.
we could even say if we feel like somehow awareness is bounded somehow by my brain or body or head, that's really an example of a boundary or an edge. Say, the experience of awareness radiating from the center of my head, that sense of the head being the center is um, an experience. So it's what is experiencing the sense of center. So this is an, a little bit harder now than are there any boundaries to awareness? Is there a center of awareness? So usually I feel, I, it seems like we feel like the center of awareness is, is the body, yeah. the head. Um, but then we can look and see. Does the knowing, does the experiencing actually um, have a center? And if we say yes, it has this, uh, it has this center called the body. Then I would say that, that sense of center of body is an experience in experiencing. Does the sense of this of the body is center? Um, I mean, does the experiencing of the sense of body is center uh, have a center? You know, the experiencing of the center is centerless. The sense of center is a kind of experience. Do you follow that? This yeah. is what it's like. Or is, or is it a sense of oneness? A sense of That's what we start to conclude. Yeah. But I think it's really worth looking because we, we have to explore it step by step. Yeah, yeah. And especially the that no boundary, uh, no edges. Much, I think it's easier to conclude that there's no boundaries or edges. But to conclude that there's no center is That's quite hard. difficult. I yeah. think we have to spend yeah. some time. Yeah. Don't just conclude it too quickly. But I really feel like the center of this balance awareness is this body, and, mm-hmm. um, and then and then re- and then to tease this apart and say the sense of this body is um, is an experience, and it's happening in the field of experiencing, and it. It's not like it should stop happening. There will always be the sense of the body. It's almost like a seventh sense or something, that the body is the center of experiencing. But um, so that can keep happening. It's good, because we know which mouth to put the food into. Right? You don't want to lose track. And, you know, and I don't think we will lose track either. But to see that that's almost like that's, like the, that's an illusion. From the perspective of, uh, of spacious, unlocated, centerless, boundless awareness, the sense of the of the body as center is a kind of con- a convenient, useful illusion um, that helps. It's the setup of samsara that just helps us to function and multitask. And <laughs> it's the thing that helps children sleep at night, right? Yeah, it's it's um yeah it's it's what helps us feel it ironically it's what helps us feel comfortable as a separate self, but in fact it's the identification with myself as the center of awareness, the located sense of uh, um, center as the body, is the source of all suffering. <laughs> the sense of it is not a source of suffering. But the identification with like 
awareness is located in the center or radiating out from the center, that's, um, that's um, the realm of birth and death. It's like we're taking Cartier, you know, the I think therefore I am, mm -hmm. and just flipping it upside down and saying just experience is. Because it's like that Cartesian dualism that there's an I and, and I think, and yeah. I can recognize that. And that is what brings me into existence. Yeah, yeah. That I is maybe like the, um, a subjective this, I. Yeah. Right? And uh, so it's that reasoning maybe doesn't hold up. If we talk about it as a subjective, separate I, if we heard Descartes saying, um, using I to mean boundless awareness, then it's a great Dharma teaching. Well, no, I'm saying that it's like the, it's the antithesis of that, you know? It's probably that he meant that he probably had a sense of the subjective I, right? Or he didn't really get into the, what the I is. I don't, I don't want to talk about Descartes because of <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it seems the answer to that is like, is to, it, it, there is no I. There is just experience. Yeah, or, I mean, this issue of I is one that we can, that's worth exploring because it's a big issue in Buddhism. And like I mentioned the other day, right? Are we identifying ourself with the center of awareness being the body and head and collection of five aggregates and our habitual tendencies and, um, what is familiar and personal to us? Are we, is that what we feel like ourself? Or is it this, this um, the big space of awareness is ourself? And these, like I mentioned, these later Buddha nature teachers were willing to start using that term. And I think it's because like, we probably will identify with the self. And can, can we, um, it's just saying, instead of saying there's no self, that might, that's a skillful way for some people. Some might find like, well, actually, there is a sense of somebody here, but what if that somebody is boundless space in which there's this sense of a center appearing called Kokyo, of shifting my identity from the center to the, to the entire space. The center is still appearing, but my true identity, that's not my true identity, it's a conventional kind of identity. My true identity is the vast spaciousness. And I think we might say, can we just decide to shift our identity like that? And I think sometimes when we start to explore these things, we can consciously try out <laughs> that identity. We can see, like, what would it be like if, if that is my true self? But I think the way it really shifts naturally, without trying to do that, is... Um, and this is kind of bigger discussion maybe about what we mean by self. But I think self, naturally we mean like what is most intimate and most um, true and most kind of stable and, um, and uh, most, uh, what I most intimately feel myself to be and almost like feel the security in being. Those are some ways I would describe a sense of self uh, offhand right now. And uh, that's what we usually feel like. This collection of body and mind is what I, is what I know, what's secure. I feel like it's what, is, what I started with at birth. And it's, the body's changing, but, this, but the collection seems like, um, though it's limited, it's 
very familiar and it's feels safe to some extent. That I I am here. I know where I am. <laughs> that kind of thing. But uh, but actually has all these problems, right? That that view of self. Whereas if we the more we get in touch with this space of knowing, the more to me anyway, it naturally starts to feel more like myself. It it's more intimate actually. And it's more trustworthy. It's more like, yeah, I feel like I can I can relax more in this bigger me. You know? I can't really completely relax in this body and thoughts, but this big one um, it feels uh, to be more like um, I trust it more. I trust it more than this than this thing that I used to trust most. Body and mind. Now I trust the awareness more. Actually, the body and mind are actually, as I look at them more, quite untrustworthy. They do all kinds of weird things that I didn't, that I didn't want them to do. <laughs> so, but this one, um, the big, the big one, um, never goes wrong, and it's, it's reliable refuge. So those are some of the reasons where we might naturally start to get identity. As we explore it more, get more familiar with the big one, the identity might naturally start to expand into the big one as my true sense of who I am, who I truly am. How do you develop that trust? I would say through these, through this exploration that we're doing right now, and um, over a long time, just keep, keep um, asking these things. And let me just run through a few more questions since we're. Uh, just a, the, the ones we talked about so far are um, are the basis, and the others you could make up your own, really. But I find some that are now now we're looking at the relationship between once we're pretty settled with the, the sense of that there is a knowing presence of awareness that we can never get a hold of or objectify, and it has no boundaries or center, like space. Then, um, now what's the relationship of that experiencing to experiences? So say, first we could just take a, like a visual experience of the cup. Um, what's the relationship of, the, of this visual experience of the cup to the, experience, to the boundless experiencing awareness that has no limits or edges? What would you say? Relationship to me, a kind of funny question. Well, like, um, we, maybe we could ask it like, where is this, the experience of, of seeing the cup, where is that happening in relation to the space of awareness? In your own experience. Remember, we have, we're now we're asking these questions as awareness, we're trying to identify where we are being the awareness, and from this new perspective of being boundless space. It's all Buddha nature. It's all Buddha nature. So, so where in relationship to this, to, to me, the boundless space, is this experience of the cup? It's all the same. Oh, yeah. 
same. So then how can we describe where the cup is in relation to me? Yeah, that, that's I think a, a nice way to put this. If, if we're talking about locating it, he said um, it must be inside. It must be in awareness because if the space is boundless and has no edges, by definition, there's nothing outside of it. And previously we were talking about by definition, theoretically, but now hopefully through our exploration we can come to see that this is not just theory, right? If we look for boundaries or edges, we can't find any. So we shouldn't assume there are any if we can't find any. So if there's something with no, with no boundaries, and then there's an experience happening, could that experience be happening outside of awareness? Is it like, just, is like awareness is like, kind of stops here, and, the cup is, and it kind of meets the cup, and it's just outside of awareness? No, it's not really like that. It's, awareness is all-inclusive, so every experiencing Every experience must be happening within awareness. Oh, that's nice. It's not outside of it, it's inside of it. <laughs> A way of talking, but can we, can, we, can we feel, can we sense how this is a really different way now, looking at the cup. It's happening in experiencing, in the space of experiencing. We're still using a kind of spatial metaphor here. Of it, but um, so it's. Uh, but I think it's helpful to sense that before we did this exploration, it seemed like the cup was happening to awareness. We were when we're aware of the cup, the, the experience of the cup is happening to awareness. That's called dualistic consciousness. Now, from this new perspective, the cup, the experience of the cup, is happening in awareness. Mm-hmm instead of two awareness. See, see how the difference? It's quite a difference. Although if I'm still with the cup, and it's, like, it's not really like anything changed, except our perspective is quite different. And can we feel how, not just theoretically, but can we have some sense? It's almost like a feeling. Feeling's a little objective, but uh, almost like, a, again, kind of confirmation as it was asked earlier are there any other non-conceptual confirmations so here's one Uh, can we can we have a non-conceptual not just the idea that the cup is happening in in awareness but actually confirm on some deep sort of gut level heart level um, beyond gotten heart level, like, again, is, is, is the cup happening um, to experience, or is the cup, or is, it, is the cup happening in experience? Can we say definitively, yes, the cup, the experience we're talking about, the cup, is happening in experience. I get, I, there's a confirmation. Can we have a, a direct confirmation, not just the idea Sense that? We might have to work with it a while. Well, is that what is meant by everything is good in nature? Yeah, and I would say now we're talking about the realm of, dare I say, use this so called E word, 
<laughs> I think. Because now we're, we're, if we can directly confirm, not in a conceptual way, but um, in a non-conceptual, direct confirmation, and with you know, confidence and conviction and trust, really, the experiencing of the cup. It's mo I feel it is more true to me to say that the cup is happening in my in the field of experiencing rather than uh, it's happening to me. The part of it just has to do with, again, the identification. I, if we're using the word me, then I am the field of experiencing. So we might have to, that might be another confirmation, which is I am the, um, I feel myself to be most intimately the, um, the balanced field of experiencing. I feel it to be more true than I am the, this body and five skandhas. Still five skandhas happening, and Tokyo has all his memories and all. Yes, but, but, and that's conventionally me, and somebody says, where do you live? I tell them where Tokyo's body lives. Right? But um, you can still talk that way. But do I feel myself on the deepest level to be, um, to be the space and experiencing in which that's happening. And that's who I trust myself to be. Maybe, maybe not always. Like, personally, I don't always feel that. I can have all these habits where I just contract into my usual, deeply habituated sense of uh, personal self. But can I, like, temporarily, through this exploration, come to, for a moment, feel like, yeah, there's a momentary confirmation that um, I am the space in which everything's happening, and I am boundless, and uh, with no edges or center. That's what I truly am. And we, and you know, then we might have to explore this for a while. I mean, actually, yeah. But um, it's possible to do this, and I suggest we shouldn't fake it. <laughs> like, well, I kind of think. And I really want to feel like that. Especially <laughs> if I hear that it's like Buddhist enlightenment. You know. Give me that. Of course, then we're completely contracted back into it. I want to have this experience. That's, it's not enlightenment, it's not an experience, I would, I would propose. So how is so it said that Eric would have an Eric looking at the cup would be experiencing in a different way? Well, that's a good question. So we could say our, our personal dualistic consciousness um, with the sense of located um, subjectivity in, in the body, we see the cup in a different way. So that we could say that dualistic consciousnesses are, we each have our own Buddhist teaching. And, we, and our five skandhas, we each have our own. Our storehouse consciousness, which is it's in a collection of all five skandhas and all our <coughs> all our memories. We each have our own. Just maybe we affect each other, but they're somewhat individual. But the experiencing, so Eric's experiencing of the cup and my experiencing of the cup, are they different? The visual, the visual experience is different, but is the experiencing different? And remember how we're talking about and. Experiencing 
experiencing. Experiencing has no boundaries or edges. It's indivisible. It's all-inclusive. If it's that kind of thing, then it, if Eric and I have different ones, it has to be a division between his experiencing and my experiencing. And we might feel as if, well, it must be. And we imagine the division, but again, that division that we imagine between our experiencings, between our awarenesses, is a conceptual construct. It's an object that's happening in experiencing. So really, we, remember, we can directly confirm that experiencing is happening. We, we can directly confirm and verify that it has no boundaries or center. It might take a little work, but we have time. <laughs> what else <laughs> do we have to do? We, uh, we can, and then we can start all these, all these things, I would say, we are somewhat, right now we're talking conceptually, but I think we can have non-conceptual verification of like, there's no boundary between my awareness and Eric's awareness. Um, and it's, we're using reasoning here too, right? We're using some, and we're using some understanding that um, if there were, if we found any boundary, um, it would be in the realm of temporary experiences. It'll be an objective thing. So, um, and we can't really, I can't find a boundary between this awareness and Eric's awareness. We, we don't, I don't actually know what Eric's experiencing is like, but, um, so there's maybe kind of some deduction here too. It's like, I know what this experiencing is like. It's like indescribable, right? It's like nothing. We can't, there's no qualities to describe it with. And so I can pretty much deduce that Eric's is like that too. And all of yours is like that, right? Um, that if you're, you're um, investigating your awareness and also find that it's boundless and centerless, I, I can, you could say it's a slight assumption on my part to say that you have, your, your awareness is exactly the same as mine, but... The more I get familiar with mine, the more I have a very strong intuitive sense that yours is exactly like mine, right? That's why these teachings are like all sentient beings, putting aside the insentient. But if I look at that cat across the street that wants to be pet every time I walk in the door, <laughs> I see it. I feel like my strong intuitive sense is its experiencing is exactly the same as mine. Its experience is very different doesn't have language, it doesn't have, um, it has a different history, it might not even have a sense of memory at all. It does have some memory, I think, because it remembers that I'm a person <laughs> that might pet it. But uh, I think it's a very different experience, but don't we have the strong intuition that the experiencing awareness of the cat is identical, in this case, identical meaning like, not like very similar, but like the same awareness. Now again, the mosquito might have to spend a little longer time. <laughs> but uh, I like doing that when I see insects. I like to use the seeing an insect as a practice of, of um, this is a little bit of an imagination, but opening to. I imagine that there's there's a um, 
there's a what it is like to be a mosquito. It's very different than the what it is like to be Tokyo. But that, um, or you could say the, the particularities are very different. But maybe the what it is like is actually an evidence for the, the experiencing. Maybe we won't go into what it is like. This is one way some, some modern cognitive scientists are, are talking about trying to define the sense of self as the what it is likeness to be a mosquito or a human. There is some, there is some sense of, uh, of being in sentient beings. So usually they talk about this is the realm of sentience. Mind. So, so um, just to just to finish off this uh, sense of quest, this series of questions. If there's if these objects, and I think we're we're talking about the visual object of the cup, maybe even even more fruitful or equally fruitful. But I think investigating the body, the sense of um, tactile sensation. Like in the um, feeling in the stomach, there's, or when we're sitting in zazen, we're probably a little bit uncomfortable. Those feelings, those bodily sensations, where are they um, located in relation to the awareness? Same, right? They're not happening, those sensations are not happening to me, the awareness, they're happening in me. And, uh, and uh, we, can, we can explore further, like, these, all these experiences of body and perception and so on happening within me. Uh, what is, is that within, is, the, is like the, the visual cup that's happening within me in the space of awareness, is that, some, is that different than the awareness? In other words, um, like this cup is appearing in the space of the room right now, but we do say that in this in this sense of the physical space, the cup is some is a thing that's happening in space. But in this in this cognitive space, the experiencing of the cup, is it is it most accurate to say that it's within me? I think it is. It's much better than saying it's happening to me. But is it more like actually? What we're talking about the cup here is the it's the knowing of the cup. So it's the knowing of the cup happening in knowing? Or is the knowing of the cup actually just knowing? No separation? Yeah, no, yeah. Like... With distinction. Apparent distinction. Mm-hmm. Apparent uh, um, experience. But um, you could say this experience we call the cup, is there really an ex- is it maybe another way of saying it? Is the experience of the cup something other than the experiencing of it? Is there really an experience happening to experiencing? That's how we've been talking so far, but a further inquiry. Or the experience of a, of a, of a pain in the gut or something. Is that experience something other than the experiencing of it? Or is actually what we mean by feeling in the gut or the sight of the cup is actually... Really, is it just experiencing, taking the form of a cup? 
taking the form of what we call an experience? Is it experiencing that's uh, almost like a kind of manifesting? Is this word that Dogen uses? Is ex- is it? Can we see that experiencing is manifesting as a particular experience? So what it really is, this experience. First, we first we just call it a cup, a solid thing called a cup. Now we're talking about it as an experience of a cup. But this is going a step further and saying. It's, what if it's not even an experience? But this, what we call experience is nothing more than the experiencing of a cup. Experiencing is taking the form of this particular experience. Knowing is, um, is manifesting as what we call the known. Awareness is um, expressing itself as a particular experience. That's a different way of looking, but can, at this point, can we explore that, um, that uh, what we call experiences may be happening um, not to experiencing, not in experiencing, but as experiencing. There's three levels of, of intimacy, the experience of the cup happening to awareness is called dualistic consciousness. The experience of the cup happening in awareness is much more intimate. It's like it's not outside of awareness anymore, but we still say there's something within something else. So it's much more intimate. But they still say we still say that's a slight kind of duality or difference. But this third level is like the cup the experience of the cup is happening as experience. Now, I mean, as experiencing, as experiencing, it's not happening to experiencing, it's not even happening in experiencing, it's happening as experiencing. And if we say, it is experiencing, or it is awareness, is another name for that, or it is Buddha nature, now this is like, if we can really confirm that, that's complete non-duality, right? But we still can like get, drink out of it and stuff. <laughs> Think of it metaphorically as a fluid substance. Is that helpful or unhelpful? The cup is a fluid substance or the water? <laughs> the, the, the cup and the water in Kokyo. Mm. And the, the sensation in the stomach. A fluid substance. I would say that would be like a, a description of the realm of um, appearances. Mm. It's kind of like a fluid substance. When maybe it, in, in this, from this perspective, we could say all this is happening in a, a realm of interdependence and the way that cause and effect is playing out and everything's in this continuous flux and flow and impermanent arising and ceasing. That's like a kind of liquid flow, I would say. But that whole realm of um, liquid flow is actually one reality called um, unchanging, ever-present, boundless awareness, unborn, unconstructed, 
undying, ungraspable, ineffable, inconceivable, uncanny, <laughs> indestructible, underappreciated, <laughs> ordinary, plain old, no frills, mind. In which everything is allowed to happen freely. All kinds of anything can happen in this space. Anything can happen in this space, more intimately. Anything can happen as the space, or we could say the space can happen as anything. For the space to happen, it means it has to, it, the space has to manifest as 10,000 things or one thing. It can, it is the space of awareness is free to express itself in every possible way. And having noticed, it's, it's doing that <laughs> in many amazing, horribly um, painful and wonderfully joyful ways throughout this world system and probably others. <laughs> it's, it's, it's free to do that, it's willing to do that, it is doing that, and, um, and all that activity of pain and pleasure doesn't hinder it in the slightest, does it? Nothing can um, harm this space that we are. In other words, the implications here now are like, if I really feel myself to be that space, I is quite, you know, personally, I don't have to always identify as that space, right? It's, if we could do that all the time, that would be like Buddha, I think. And this Buddha awareness would be like, I can't be harmed by anything. I can't be benefited by anything. I, uh, I can't suffer. There's many people, including Kokyo, who will continue to suffer. And if I am identified with Kokyo, I will suffer. But if I am not Kokyo, my true identity is not Kokyo. I am the all-inclusive, boundless, um, entire universe <laughs> uh, with all kinds of suffering beings in it. The totality of myself um, is the experiencing of this experience we call suffering. But the experiencing of suffering is not suffering, right? That's why it's always free. It's, it's, um, and uh, even while all these beings continue to suffer, I might say, well, that sounds kind of aloof. Kind of like, um, isn't that sort of, isn't that kind of like splitting yourself off of, out of your body somehow and like you wouldn't care about 
your body or others anymore. We might think that way, but um, I think the more we try this out, I think it's actually the opposite. Because we see that all the bodies, all the suffering bodies, what is their true nature? Me! <laughs> they are all expressions, manifestations of me, right? Me, the balanced totality. Every, every human and cat and mosquito and even cop right, is actually me. So if, you know, if part of me feels like, I'm just a limited cop or a limited person and therefore um, I don't like what's happening to, to little me, then, then um, hopefully I, I trust that if we're really in touch with that space, then, then we're like, wow, part of myself is, is confused and in pain here. And um, we naturally want to relieve that. How could we? How could we not? It, it's not like an uncaring. It's more like um, there's a there's a and more and more. I think from this perspective, we we see pain and suffering. I think we have to say that more and more from this perspective, we see pain and suffering as a, a type of confusion. It's a misidentification. And so we still we see it as like, no, I feel so bad about myself. But it's really, it's pain, but we see that it's, that it's based on a misidentification, which all sensitive beings are doing continuously, right? This, this misidentification. So, so I think the bodhisattvas, we might feel at first like a bodhisattva's responding to suffering is just... Um, you know, I, uh, I, um, I have this problem. Can you talk with me about it? And like, can you, can you tell me that I'm okay? You know. So I think we can do that. But I think more and more we see that the bodhisattva. It says this in people like Chandra Kirti too. Is that bodhisattvas they, uh, as they as they develop this understanding more, they see that suffering is a. Um, is a, like a misperception. So they're relating to suffering sentient beings as a kind of um, misper... As a, um, they're trying to cure, they're trying to aid the suffering by um, relieving the misperception. Mostly. And, and in order to do that, they might first really, you know, first you have to just be really kind to people. But then the Bodhisattva work is really, let's, how can we be free from the illusions about ourself. So, that's a lot. It's getting great. <laughs> but, uh, but those are some of the lines of inquiry in a direct way and, uh, and make up our own questions. Explore the like, Another one is like exploring the beginning and end of awareness. Like, have we ever, has there ever been the experiencing of um, the beginning of awareness? Has there been the experiencing of the beginning of experiencing? There's many beginnings of experiences. People wake up from sleep and they're like, I'm here. Um, 
I'm here, Kokyo again, in my bed. So if I could just began with the experiencing, can we catch a place where it began? I don't think so, because that would have to be experiencing, would have to experience the beginning of experiencing. How could it do that? So by this type of investigation, we could we can start to explore the timelessness aspect of it. It didn't actually begin um, at any time. <laughs> Not only is it unlocatable in space, it's spaceless. It has no spatial dimension. It has no temporal time. It's, it's timeless. Sometimes it's called timeless awareness. It, it's, not, it's not flowing. It doesn't change. It's, it, we can call it now, but not a now between a past moment and a future moment, but like an eternal now. And we can call it a here, but not a here as opposed to there, but an all-inclusive here. I, um, I found uh, this newsletter from the Santa Cruz Zen Center across the street. And uh, yesterday we were talking about um, karma and rebirth. Um, and uh, so I, I wrote this article and looking at the kind of conventional teachings about karma and rebirth, but trying to, to understand those things. So um, if you're interested, I'll, I'll leave it on the table. Because it's Austin's and Center's. Thank you for your attentive presence.